Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Love Extremist Radio. I am in the living room with Phil America. So awesome to have you here, Phil. Phil is a new friend and a California-raised artist, writer, and activist. He has worked and lived throughout the U.S., Europe, Asia, and Africa, concentrating on individual moments of freedom while looking at relationships with class, gender, and race. In his work, he uses installation and sculptures, performance, photography, video, and fashion in searching for a better understanding and connection to his subjects, while bringing about an interpersonal relationship between the viewer and himself. Recently, he has started to focus more on using conversation as a medium, as well as looking for ways to activate unused spaces. So, conversation as a medium... Here we are. Let's use conversation as a medium. Absolutely. Um, I love the idea of activating unused spaces. You've done that a bit in terms of creating galleries out of nowhere, or not nowhere, but places that are kind of forgotten or underutilized or bringing new audiences into places that they might not normally go. Can you speak a bit to that? Yeah. Uh, So I was always intrigued with this idea of the gallery. Right. and the gallery space um, and the borders and limits that that creates. Mm. So often in my work, I've, I, I've taken a lot of time examining borders, flags, nation states um, in the literal sense, but also the borders that exist in communities or because of race or class or gender. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> the, the idea of a gallery to me is, uh, at least in the way that it functions in the West, is a very, or globally, rather, uh, is, is very antiquated. And yeah. so I wanted to create a uh, response to that. And so obviously the idea of a gallery in the way it exists right now generally um, is creating a space and an opportunity for artists to have a market for their work and sell their work. And so there's a lot of great things to be said about a gallery, maybe a thousand great things I could think of off the top of my head, but I can think of 2000 criticisms. So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, that was kind of where it started. And so I wanted to create, and I use the word gallery in quotes, but a gallery where uh, I kind of looked at the idea of a gallery. Hmm. And so the work that was in it was a body of work in and of itself. And then the gallery itself also became a, a part of the work or a separate work in and of itself. Hmm. And, Again, just kind of like looking past the borders of, of these quote-unquote galleries who are, you know, even the, some of the greatest artists living today are giving up half their money to the gallery. Right. And uh, <clears throat> instead using a space that's completely unutilized or forgotten and creating a gallery out of that space. So, subway, abandoned subway station. Mm-hmm. Was that your first? That was, uh, let's say that was the first, yeah. I mean... I've done a lot of work throughout my career that I uh, that was very performative by nature. Everything that I do, for the most part, has some performative element to it. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I would define myself if somebody asked me one type of artist that I am, but performance art is like what's really near and dear to me yeah. and where I pull a lot of inspiration from within the arts. Um, and the that was, you know, there was a whole number of things that I had done uh, as works of art that called that same conversation into question, but the very first one that I kind of put that uh, title onto, that being an unauthorized gallery or a legal gallery, was the Subway one in New York. And that one you had to, how'd you get into uh, a space like that? Well, uh, well, my where I started was really documenting my, my starting as an artist, let's say, with mm-hmm. the word art and capital A as, mm-hmm. as showing the work and selling the work and stuff was uh, through the lens of 
photography generally mm -hmm. and like following and documenting people who were painting graffiti on subway trains mm -hmm. also pa other types of passenger trains like commuters and um, light rails and things like that but generally subways which is the absolute most difficult most dangerous biggest um biggest punishment if you're caught right uh, many many people have spent months or years in in jails and prisons across this world just for painting a train um generally that they spend 10-15 minutes on that gets cleaned right away there's a number of people people i know personally have lost their lives doing this this uh art and so i was really attracted to the performative nature of that and really the fact that people were kind of going against the grain of what graffiti is now and even how it started in the sense that you're looking to be seen and recognized. So you're right. creating a work that you hope that somebody sees it and that's how you gain notoriety or fame. Right. Immortalization. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, like you paint a wall and I think, you know, there's the immortalization is through like people seeing it and recognizing it and right. seeing that like quote unquote work that you put in. But when you paint a subway train, that that is getting cleaned right away. So right. it's like the the idea of getting up or trying to like be the most up or be seen everywhere is it's the exact opposite because nobody's seeing it. It's in the middle of a train yard that somebody's having to you know break through a whole myriad of different um, layers of defenses that are put up. Whether that's personal barriers that um, you have to get over, like fear. Or whether that's barriers such as you know technology. There's sensors. There's cameras. There's also um, all different types of security and things like that. And then there's the aftermath of the uh, detectives who investigate these crimes and things like that, and mm -hmm. the punishments that come along with that. So I was very fascinated by the fact that there was this performative element to it, mm -hmm. and so that was kind of my entry point into uh, into art. Was capturing that, documenting that, and then showing that, and then it like grew from there, went further from there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, um, you know, so I had spent a lot of time going into subways, subway tunnels, subway stations, subway yards, um, with and without permission. So like, uh, generally without, obviously. Um, so back to your question, that I had spent a lot of time going through the subway tunnels of New York, mm -hmm. and um, without completely incriminating myself there. There is a number of abandoned uh, subway stations within the New York transit system. Mm -hmm. And so some of a couple of them you're able to access through special private tours. Um, one of them is actually the, a museum at this point, which is the transit museum. Um, some of the other ones you can stay on the train and it makes a loop and you'll see it. So there's a whole uh, number of them. And this one had been abandoned for over a hundred years. Um, wow. Where I... Um, where the gallery is, the yeah. quote-unquote gallery. And so this gallery I wanted to create in a space that was like very inaccessible without having to cross the barriers of, of the law and your own barriers of fear uh, to be able to even see the work. And then the work itself was focused on mass shootings in America. Um, every single mass shooting that I created a work about, an individual work about, because each work was based on a specific mass shooting, was uh, a mass shooting perpetrated by a white American male. And so I created these works out of um, a fiberglass textile that I put in resin and they became hard. And they all were indicative of flags. So they look like flags. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I hung them all, or they had them hung all in a space in this uh, abandoned station. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there was also a video element that had a sound element to it that was um, using the electrical power of the subway tunnel that was still there. So there was a projection on the wall showing a video that I had created. And uh, yeah, and that was basically it. How did people get down and see it? Um, well, initially I, I wanted to just leave it there and like see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, I had worked with somebody who's part of the urbex or urban exploration community from New York, cool. a, woman, a girl named Ash, um, Ash Flip, shout out to her. And uh, she was very informative and helpful in terms of like how to make this happen. Cool. And that there's a community, a huge community around the country, especially in New York, like exploring all of these urban um, areas, abandoned or off limits. And so I... Uh, you know, had to figure out how to get in and how to, how to, this would function. And basically, obviously you have to run down a live track where trains right. pass. And right. so it takes learning the schedules, learning how the lights work, learning, um, you know, how to get in and out without getting hit by a train. If That's a train's incredible. coming. 
Wow. And then on top of that, figuring out, you know, the technological um, barriers that stop people from entering, you know, cameras, things of that nature. And then, uh, you know, obviously um, figuring out how to get a whole bunch of art into there is a whole another uh, layer to it. But um, yeah, in order for people to see it, they had to risk their life and break the law. So uh, that, you know, was part of the, the um, narrative of the work. Do you find that in it being almost inaccessible, it becomes more accessible because there's a little bit of a, the story is something that highlights the, the work? I don't know that it makes it more accessible, but certainly the story is, becomes part of what the work is. Right. I like, like I said, I kind of wanted to just leave it there and have you know only the urban explorers find it when they go down there and let it build off of that. Um, but it quite quickly became um, very public. Like it was in New York newspapers and right. all international papers, and then people were reaching out to do interviews and asking me to take them there and all types of stuff like that. Um, so it it became very public very fast and. Uh, from that, a number of other people obviously went and saw it. And, uh, you know, people who knew how to get down there, people who just didn't and ran in and risked it all. And mm. so from there, it, uh, you know, and then obviously from that press, unfortunately, uh, that turned into phone calls from detectives and things of that nature, just for the sheer fact that it's illegal to be down there and it's illegal to leave things places and X, Y, Z, you know. Mm. Interesting. So... I'm thinking about the content also, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're speaking on something really important and the work is talking to mass murderer in America, right. mass shootings. Do you, did you feel like kind of making it hard to access um, could like dilute the message or like the, the importance of that work? Or did that feel like, how do those two things communicate? Well, I think that the, its inability to be accessed was, uh, and the fact that you couldn't get to it almost made that more important to me because... Mm. Um, kind of like a metaphor for like... For what a gallery is. Like these galleries close at 5 p.m. Oh. Most people don't feel like it's their place to go inside. People are afraid to go in a gallery. People from most underprivileged communities, even in the city that we're sitting um, in one of the like bigger, more wealthy cities on the planet, people, you know, you go to these communities and the people there have never been to a gallery in their life. There's no gallery in their community. There's no art coming to their community. So I wanted to um, flip that on its head and create something that was inaccessible for people who think that they have all the access, like no, no amount of money or uh, mm. access is going to get you into this space, even though it's open 24 hours or even though it's closed 24 hours. That's so look interesting. At it. Yeah. I'm looking at it from the <clears throat> standpoint of like, wanting to get that message out to people who aren't necessarily consumers of art, but mm -hmm. should be having conversations about mass shootings. Right? Absolutely. And you're looking at it from the perspective of, well, if I put this in a gallery, only, you know, the privilege would be able to see it. Sure. So I wanted to like go, there's another layer there. It's really a different <clears throat> mindset. That's really interesting and cool. So some of the other unauthorized galleries you've done were a bit more accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, and can you speak a little bit to kind of the next phases? Yeah, so the next one was probably more inaccessible, and then the one after that was quite accessible. Okay. Um, but the, the one I did after that that I uh, publicized was uh, at the U.S.-Mexico uh, US border. Right. And so I spent some time there. Uh, I worked with people who were helping people who come across the border without permission. And so I started to, uh, like many of my projects, I don't usually start uh, thinking through the lens of how is this going to be an artwork, mm -hmm. but rather how can I do something uh, that's furthering my own knowledge or asking the questions that I think need to be asked. So <clears throat> that's kind of the starting point for this is like I, I asked myself, how can I help? And so the day that Trump got into office, I started a clothing exchange after like months of relationship building at the border where people who were crossing, I would exchange you know, the kind of worn, tattered clothes that they would wear for new clothes and had partnerships with people who would give me or companies who would give me clothes. Wow. So just as a very simple example, if you came across with one jacket, it's all beat up, you give me the jacket, I give you two brand new jackets. Mm. And so that didn't really start as an artwork um, mm. per se, but it, the artwork came of me having a whole bunch of clothes and not really knowing what to do with them. 
So ultimately, I cut up all of these clothes and uh, sewed them together and created these American flags, kind of symbolizing this new new American free, um, idea of the American dream. And uh, then I had those framed and I installed them on the Mexican American uh, border wall. Right. And then that kind of came to be the gallery. And in all of these, like I approach it as if I was showing it in a gallery, like from past experiences myself and uh, started putting wall text and being sure to photograph them and document them well and talk about them in the same way that I would a gallery or approach it in the same way that I would work that I want to be shown in a gallery. And uh, yeah, and so obviously that one uh, lasted, like the one in New York is still there. Wow. After years, um, they've taken down the video and stuff, but the, the sculptural works are still there. Whereas the uh, work in at the border was taken down within hours, I'm sure. So it's sitting in some Homeland Security fucking evidence locker somewhere mm. so that's where it's housed at this point so yeah. you know that the the idea again was more the performative nature of the work uh, whether that is embedded in all the work that led up to it in this clothing exchange or whether that's the performative nature of me uh, actually going and hanging them there there's you know layers of performance that are embedded into that work and for me the actual work isn't necessarily the tangible item um, but more the 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 uh, action of going and hanging those works mm. and who do you want to be the audience like who who do you want to consume this work it's a good question um i i don't always think as much about the audience as i'm creating it which is probably uh one of my big faults um i when i create a work i generally am thinking about the performance and so the, the, the tricky part about a performance is like, I give you a really s- simple example. I lived with Bear Bear Nomads in Northern Africa for a long time and almost a year. Stayed in the desert the whole time, was uh, traveling, living without money, living without you know, anything and living off of a barter system. And so for me, that was the performance. And generally, if I feel like there's something that I want to communicate through the language of art, then I will take that and I will turn it into an artwork that then creates a question that I want to ask. Mm. Yet with that specific work, the, the performance was enough for me. And it ended up being just me asking a, a question of myself rather than there being an audience that I want to ask a specific question to. And so fast forward to, for example, the work at the border, yeah. um, that became a question that I wanted people to ask themselves. And I, with all of my work, you know, I approach it in a very extremist, very radical way through the, in the sense that I um, try to ask radical questions, mm. try to uh, formulate radical uh, questions through the actual work. And instead of, like a lot of artists, creating a work that has a period at the end, instead of creating a work that has a question mark at the end. Mm. And cool. so, you know, with that, obviously, I start to think about who is the audience here. Um, the audience, obviously, for me, at that point, post the performance becomes um, not the border patrol who comes and rips them off the wall and and tries to solve this crime that they're trying to solve, but instead the the people that see it through the documentation of the work. So with that, then I had like um, communications with people in press. I let those them have the people that I wanted to have specific access to the photos and then those ended up in press. And so then that, um, that becomes the audience as people who see it through through that lens instead of taking it and showing it in a traditional art sense um, or art space or showing it <clears throat> through the lens of my own like work or putting it on my website, but rather like using the press as my um, as who I am speaking through. Yeah. And just so people know, you can see all these projects on your website, philamerica.com. Yeah, there's some of them on there. I don't know that that one's on there, but I mean, Google is always an easy source, yeah. so... I, I found it pretty easily. Yeah, cool. it's pretty um, amazing what you've what you put up, um, and and so speaking to your experience living in this Berber community, um, you also chose to live in Thailand, right, mm-hmm. in the second largest slum in the world, right? Is that right? Yeah. And can you speak a little bit to that experience and 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 what that resulted in as a, a piece of art? Sure. I um, well, I spent quite a bit of time in that region. I lived there for a few years. In Southeast Asia, um, working with a school that uh, helps educate people who are uh, migrants coming from Burma, and um, you also helped just, open that school, right? <clears throat> yeah, I helped. Well, I helped establish it. Somebody else opened it, but I helped build it and still work with them closely. So, um, past that, I uh, 
decided to stay there and like try to do a bunch of work in that area and stuff. And so I uh, have a deep love for people there and uh, wanted to do something that um, would question kind of the borders that they have within their own community, like looking past uh, the national border and more at the borders that existed within even just the cities themselves, uh, you know, real or uh, in people's minds. And so the slum was and is a place where when you go to Bangkok, it's in Bangkok, in the most visited city on the planet for the past like six years or something, uh, the slum itself is something, is a place that everyone will tell you not to go. And it doesn't matter if you're white or if you're Thai. They're going to tell you that that's a community that you don't go to. Mm. And so I started to, the more people told me, hey, don't go there, the more I wanted to like have a relationship there right. <clears throat> with that place and with the people of that place. Mm-hmm. So I started to spend quite a bit of time there. And uh, I started to build relationships there with people there. Um, I quickly learned that the people who run that area are the mafia and not the police. And the police don't often go there. It's a city that's built completely without permission um, or a, a community built completely without permission within a city in and of itself. And, uh, and it's huge, obviously. Being the second biggest is it's massive. It's the biggest yeah. in Southeast Asia. So as soon as you look past India it's it's the biggest so um, when I started to first investigate uh, that slum I started to like connect with people at the uh, Jelanicorn University and Bangkok University and started to talk to people who studied this area um, uh, from an institutional standpoint and from uh, like educators and so through that I really realized that they were looking at things like only from the outside and hadn't ever even like my first question to everybody was like have you ever spent the night there Mm. have you ever even been there at night and then the answer was always no and so then I started to talk to journalists and photojournalists and all of them had like documented to this place like the biggest English newspaper in Asia had documented a bunch of this in the slum and yet they had never spent more than a few hours there Mm. and so to me it felt like an injustice to the people there to be able to go into that community and then broadcast and speak for that community, even though you have no relationship to it and you haven't even spent any time there yet, you're calling it hell. And you're saying that it's like these people are living in the most extreme poverty when that's looking at it through your own lens, first of all. And second of all, like how the fuck do you know? Because you walked through there. So I really, um, I started to build relationships there. I started to help out at the slum schools, um, working with, kids and people who were like were really the community leaders within that neighborhood and you and, spoke thai at that point yeah and so um a lot of the people there are from northeastern thailand isan uh, mostly and a lot of burmese as well and so for that reason the um you know there's racial uh prejudices against them mm. within their own country so mm the people who are like Bangkok born, and I'm generalizing, of course, this isn't everybody, but I would go far out on a limb to say it's most people, um, whether it's from the highest of class or the people who live in an adjacent neighborhood that's um, very poverty stricken. They Mm. look down on them because of the color of their skin and the region that they're from and the dialect that they speak. Mm. So I came in um, speaking Thai, but not speaking their dialect. And so it was hard already. Um, but spending time there, building those relationships there, building relationships with the mafia, getting permissions to be in these places, staying there, um, living there in other people's homes, like, or at least staying the night for nights on end. And then that culminating to like actually having a home built by the carpenters that build all the other homes. They build them like literally on the train tracks, the train tracks come through. You've probably seen it online. If you haven't looked it up, it's wild, but they'll, they're, the train tracks will be completely covered, like fruits and vegetables and all different other types of goods that are being sold. And then as soon as um, as soon as the train is coming, the whole right. entire thing will pull back and the train will pull through and it's it's wild. Yeah. And so there's people like living right on the train tracks. Like right. if they put their arm out, the train would hit it. So wow. all of that kind of like was where they build the homes as well. And so I had a home built and had it placed in the slum, obviously with permission of the mafia, lived in it consecutively for almost a month. And... Uh, you know, again, just like wanting to look past the borders that were put in front of me and try to have some semblance of a very small sliver 
of understanding for people there and a real um, connection and relationship with people there and, and the community in and of itself. So, and and that house then was pulled out, or what well, <clears throat> afterwards we deconstructed it. Me and the carpenters who built it, I built, I had them build it with the idea that it would be deconstructed and reconstructed somewhere else. So I had, I deconstructed it and then installed it in a museum and uh, showed it at a museum along with a video that I had shot there that was really focused on highlighting the, um, the positive aspects of that community and, and the beauty that I saw through my own lens and living there, you know, as a white American man and with the ability to leave anytime I want and showing that work through that lens. So I had the, the home as a sculpture. I had a surround sound installation. I think it was like five or six channels, had the video work showing, and then people could come in and kind of like see the home and see and experience to some degree what it was like, um, you know, what that home was like, because a lot of these people would never cross the barrier to go into there. So I tried to bring some relic of the, um, the other side of the fence, quote unquote, to them. And then at the opening, you know, we had the, um, a bunch of the people come from the slum, all of my friends, like tons of the people who were from the mafia and from, you know, sold food on the side of the street and like you know, a bunch of the kids from the slum school that I taught at, they all came to the opening. And then we had all of these like art world collectors and stuff there as well. And so then they were, it was kind of like the first time we had bridged this gap and had all these people in the same space having conversations with each other that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And so at the end of the day, I was like, okay, that's, that's, that's beautiful. That's enough. You know, it was, it, it was very beautiful for that's sure. Incredible that you were able to do that. And in that case, use the infrastructure of the art world sure. to bring these groups together. Sure. It's beautiful. I think a lot of times, uh, the art world ends up just being a conduit that people use to make money. And so certainly not, I'm certainly guilty of that as well. Right. Um, but Aside from that, this work was really important for me to like bring people together and create that conversation that wasn't being had. And like going into it and even up until the last moment and even now speaking about it, it wasn't something and it isn't something that I felt um, it was my place to, to make a statement or have anything to say. And I'll, I'll, all it was was really like creating a question of like, hey, why aren't you why, why aren't you going there? Why aren't they able to come here? Why, you know, why do these, you know, quote unquote borders exist in our, in our city and things like that. So. <clears throat> wow. It makes me think about just the slums on the streets of Los Angeles and, you know, peering into that life just by driving by Absolutely. and considering what it would be like to post up. And yeah. also both of the, importance of telling that story and being in that world and also um the challenges there i mean were you were you criticized for your work at all or um not really actually act no let me rephrase actually jonathan jones who's like one of the leading art critics in the world writes for the guardian wrote a very slanderous uh article about me that's quite funny um <laughs> i think that i the uh part of the the work in and of itself was uh looking at it through the lens of like poverty porn and the things that people are making that they have no real relationship to and questioning why people are making these works, um, which was part of the work that I was making. Um, it was questioning that. And so I feel like in that criticism, he really missed the point. I think he also like did a huge injustice to himself as a journalist because he didn't even come to see the show, but wrote a, <laughs> wrote a criticism of it. And it's, mm. that seems to me, um, yeah, poor, poor taste, bad journalism. Mm. But anyways, yeah, so there was like a little bit of criticism, but it was like, you know, on the cover of the Bangkok Post, which is like the biggest uh, English newspaper there and things like that. So I think it uh, it did what I wanted it to do. It was, you know, create a conversation and ask questions. And if in, even if it did get me a lot of blowback and I have to be the bad guy, I'm totally okay with that. And I mean, same, I think that that's a lot of people's fear is that, hey, I have all this privilege and I'm going to be, I'm going to be seen through that lens. And right. that was exactly what, why I did this work is because I have that privilege and I want it to be seen through that lens. I, I didn't go there and document a affluent Thai person living there. I went there and docu documented myself living there. I had the performance myself as a white American male. Right. Um, so the criticisms I think are again, part of the work and they are the questions that I hope are asked. They are the things that I hope people talk about. I mean, Fast forward past that, I, you know, through all of the conversations that I started to have and like all the times I was invited to speak at different universities and classes and all this stuff because of that specific work, um, it led me to 
back to my own country. And it's probably the work that brought me back to here after living abroad for so many years, like, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years of being away from America, right. uh, Europe, Asia, Africa, living away from here gave me obviously a different perspective, but then it forced me to turn my uh, attention back to this country and start to ask questions of my own community. And so I started to look at you were exact- extradited, right? <clears throat> I was extradited and brought back for um, my relationship to the school. So right. uh, that is a whole other topic that we'll just pass, <laughs> pass over because it's, uh, I don't know that it has a lot to do with the work, but it was kicked out of the country, blacklisted, blacklisted from Burma, um, all because of uh, my relationship to education and educating people there um, who were there illegally. And so, again, like brought back here, but obviously, you know, could have left anytime I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I came back, I, I really turned my focus to what was going on here. Because like you said, you drive even through this city. Mm-hmm. Again, like one of the most wealthy cities on the planet. Right. And you drive through and you see this extreme poverty with people like who look just like me or you, mm-hmm. who are people of color, who mm-hmm. are women, who are men, who are trans. Like they're all living on the street. And you start to you can imagine yourself, okay, well, that could be me. And so... I created a work um, that was kind of like the sequel, let's say, to the Project of the Slum, where I started to, I I remembered a a tent city from my hometown, which is Sacramento, um, from being there and visiting there and like going to the freight train yard and fucking around, uh, like exploring around the kind of unforgotten parts of the city. And there was this, along the riverbanks, this big um, tent city. And so... I wanted to go back there and kind of try to see what I could do or if I could live there, or if I could do something to help. And uh, I quickly realized that it had been like the government had kicked everybody out and pushed everybody away. So the, the community was broken apart. And so then I started to look, okay, well, where is the biggest um, tent city or homeless encampment in the country? And it ended up surprising enough being in silicon valley like literally in the shadow of apple and dell and all of these huge um yeah tech companies where there's this extreme wealth and all of this this young money and people who um purport to have a sense of compassion for people who are have less means than them and yet there's this massive tent city in in, right in silicon valley there it's still there it's like broken up and then they get back it's broken up and they get back while i was there the police came in and like shut it down etc but i ended up creating a work that was very similar where i um you know went there with nothing and lived there for a month and uh and then showed the work in some museums and first outside of the u.s because the my intention was to kind of um re-examine the american dream and mm-hmm. so i called the project failure of the american dream mm-hmm. and uh and then ultimately ended up showing it at some museums in in the u.s but uh yeah so i mean that the, the other one kind of led me to hear just that same that same thought process where like just because it's some slum on the other side of the planet like we can look past all the borders and see the humanity in people and understand that like hey this person on the street up the street from where we live is is going through those similar issues as people in that slum in thailand right You've used the word extreme mm-hmm. and radical um, in your in describing what you do, um, and I align a lot with that. I think what you do is pretty extreme in showing people um, edges of uh, borders and 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 their communities and what's happening on kind of the, what what people would say the extreme edge or something. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel is the next extremity for you? Oh man, that's a question that a lot of people ask me. It's like kind of what's next? What are where what are you going to do next? And uh I'm always doing a whole number of things and then some of those turn into an artwork and some of them don't. And uh the challenge is always like figuring out if it's something that I feel like needs to be talked about or people around me feel like it needs to be um like my mentors or friends or other people that are my colleagues like say, Hey, look, you're, you know, you're going, you're living here, you're investing your time in doing this. Like you could create an artwork out of that and like, um, foster a conversation out of that. Mm. And so right now, as always, like I'm doing and working on a number of things and, uh, whether those become an artwork or not, I don't know. So, but in terms of like being extreme, I think I, I wish Honestly, I wish I wasn't extreme. I wish I wasn't a radical. I wish I, the things that are important to me 
weren't radical ideas. Like it shouldn't be a radical idea that fucking people shouldn't be allowed to have 50 machine guns in their fucking basement or that we, you know, it's a radical idea to go help somebody that doesn't look like you or try to break down the walls of prison reform or animal rights or any of the things that are like extremely important to me. I, again, I wish, I wish they weren't a radical idea. I wish I was in the middle of the road and fucking conservative Mm. in my thoughts, but instead I'm some like extreme left wingist fucking idealist who is just really just focused on my own sense of what morality is and, and learning and evolving and somehow that is that's extreme is there a specific area you mentioned prison reform is mm-hmm. that and i know you're working in that space right now is that an area where you see an edge where you see kind of a border that is interesting to explore and well there's like very specific borders within that that are like right. very obvious like big walls and fences and concrete and um, but then there's legal borders in that as well, and uh, emotional, um, ones. emotional ones. There's families that are you know ripped apart. And there's so many um, borders that are created through the judicial system and through um, the police. And police brutality ends up be- um, coming out of that, and you know racial tensions and class tensions and so many other things uh, are can really be broken down through examining the the judicial system in this country, and there is huge, huge, huge injustices within it. And it's something that um, I've started to really try to examine within my art practice. Like I have a relationship to it, just like being imprisoned and sent back Mm -hmm. because of the school or like being arrested for being in train yards in the past, things like that. Um, So I have my own relationship to it, but myself, but past myself, like I have a lot of friends who have relationships to it. I have I mean, I think probably most people in this country have some slight relationship to, to the prison industrial complex mm-hmm. as a whole. Every, probably everybody does. They mm-hmm. sh- you know, shop at Victoria's Secret or buy goods that are made there or yeah, or their, you know, Whole Foods, things like this. I think Whole Foods has uh, gotten rid of anything that was made in prison, but they, they were one who used a lot of it. So, I mean, we, everybody has some relationship to it. And then there's obviously most people... More people than not probably have a, a, a loved one or a friend or a friend of a friend who's incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. So I think everybody has some relationship to it. And uh, working in that space has like been something that's really important to me. Can you speak beyond, a bit to the work that you're doing? Yeah, like beyond, beyond art, uh, there's a whole bunch of other things that I'm doing always. And mm-hmm. so whether that's fashion or whether that's, um, you know, working in the in the prison world. So I, uh, currently I am teaching a class, um, through an organization called pops pain of the prison system. And, uh, it is basically creating a safe space in high schools. And the high school that I'm at is the Robert F. Kennedy high school, uh, the LASA, which is Los Angeles high school for the arts, which is within the Robert F. Kennedy high school, uh, in Koreatown here in LA. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's on the grounds of the ambassador hotel where, uh, Robert F. Kennedy was killed. And he wanted to make sure that the space where he was killed didn't become a tourist attraction like did his brother. And he wanted, I mean, obviously he knew that there was a chance that he could be killed. And so where he was killed, he wanted it to become like a beacon of light. And uh, again, I'm like paraphrasing his words, but he ultimately they used uh, money from his foundation to build the school and from the city and all this stuff. And they, uh, the school that I teach at, we, we have a class and the kids generally use creative writing to talk about the issues that they're going through with um, dealing with with prison. And Mm -hmm. so most of them have a father or mother in prison. Um, Some of them it's uh, other relatives, some of them it's a friend, uh, but all of them have a relationship to prison. A lot of them have a hard time talking about it. There's no space for them to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And as with all my other work, same with this, it's just creating a space to have those conversations. And so we uh, at all the different schools have like started to use writing as a way to to tackle the issues that they're dealing with and um then we've published six books most recent one is on amazon it's at barnes and nobles etc um it's called pops anthology six and so the subtitle i think is we got game and uh and myself and dorian lynn designed it and uh yeah and all the money goes back to the organization help the kids we feed them it's like some it's only once a week and it ends up being uh, kind of one of their only meals of the day. Sadly, a lot of them don't eat because their um, primary bed breadwinner is incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 
the food is important and the money from the book usually goes to pay for the food and things like that. But beyond that, uh, yeah, so we've published the books. All of them leave if they want to as a published writer and we have speaking engagements and there are, you know, their books are uh, accessible to anybody that wants them. And that's that in and of itself is something that's just so beautiful to me that these kids like leave as a published writer and with, right. you know, beyond building that for their resume and beyond creating this, this safe space for them to have these conversations, they are... Um, they're leaving with a sense of confidence that I think that so cool. most kids don't get in high school, especially when, you know, their parental figures not around. So yeah. amazing. Yeah. And so then um, just being in that space so much and kind of looking at it through so many different angles, because it's so intersectional with so many things that are going on in this country, whether that be like class or race or gender um, or whether that be freedom or whether like what whatever lens you kind of want to look at it through there's there's an entry point that is probably egregious to anybody like Mm -hmm. maybe you don't care about um the issues of race Mm -hmm. and but certainly you care about your tax dollars being wasted so there's like an entry point to for for even the most conservative of people right which is why like i think you even see this being one of the only bipartisan issues in this country right it's like you've got fucking the guy in office even trying to do things uh, around prison reform. And so that said, uh, I started to kind of like create work around that uh, literally as opposed to like other things that kind of maybe lead you down that path of of thinking about freedom and what it means in the prison system, but also um, looking at it through the lens of actual prison. And so right now I'm working on a series that is uh, flags, it's a motif that I work with really often. Yeah. And um, it's all kind of examining this uh, industrial complex of prison that is of the prison system that is creating uh, and using taxpayer money to uh, make a bunch of goods that are then used in, in the prison system. And we're paying too much and mm. there's a million, million problems with it. But yeah, looking at examining that and kind of calling into question what, what that means and why it exists and how it functions. American flags are made in prisons. Some of them, yeah. A lot of the ones that you see uh, federally, like whether it's on a federal building, some of the state buildings as well, a lot of them here in, in California that are flying on a, on, a, um, on a government building are made in prison. And so I actually, I'm working on a series of paintings right now uh, that are the canvas itself is those flags that are made in the prison system. And wow. Um, haven't shown any of them yet, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's such a charged item and an in, phenomenally interesting, uh, thing that somebody would allow a, a flag that's supposed to be so sacred to so yeah. many people, whether that's on the left or the right, uh, to be made by people who are incarcerated, especially many people who are incarcerated for far too long, um, mm-hmm. for their crimes and, it's like it's literally the opposite of, of what it's supposed to symbolize. So. so wow, I resonate with the medium of flag for art. I the, one of my first projects was making flags, um, sewing flags together uh, for an exhibition I did, and I called them freak flags because I wanted to basically create individual flags for individuals and mm-hmm. like basically abolish the concept of the state or you know the affiliation of the flag with a particular group and allow it to be your own individualized this is me speaking mm. you know like I love letting that. myself my individual identity show through the, the art so yeah it's <clears> such <throat> a charged item that like right. you, it's not it's not a blank canvas you know it's it's an item that anybody sees and it's like corporate identity or it's mm-hmm. sexual orientation or it's the nation that you're from or the right thing that you stand for and so it's like so important as soon as you as soon as you kind of deconstruct that and like realign it with something else it becomes really powerful there's few flags that don't have enemies right as soon as there's a flag a it's kind of like a there's something to like fight for and against absolutely um, <clears throat> I'm okay with that though well I think there's something interesting that I think about like how do you make a flag that is actually like purely celebratory right purely mm-hmm. about yeah, be, you know, living in joy. Mm-hmm. That leads me into kind of another question that's a little bit of a turn, but really the purpose of this podcast is to assess love and how we can take love seriously in our culture. And so much of the work that you're doing is really about shining a light on folks that are living loving lives and have a lot of love in their communities, but might not be perceived that way. Um, but I'd love to hear from you. How do you define love? Wow. Um... 
It's an interesting one. I think um, I'm going to have to give you probably a long answer. Great. But I think love is, a, is an interesting word. I think that when we start to think about what words mean and the, the, the power behind them, um, we have to look at language as a whole. And all languages are, at the end of the day, really just a concept and an idea that um, a lot of us or all of us agree on, right? And so we all have to agree that blue is blue, right? And so there's obviously shades to that. <clears throat> Maybe we're colorblind. Sure. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and uh, we, we have to look at it through the lens of it just being a concept and understand that there's going to be words that we agree on that we don't agree on. So with everything that I do, I try to, uh, even in the way that I speak, break down as many barriers as I can and make things as accessible as possible. I try to use a vernacular that is as accessible as possible. And uh, instead of like, if I'm going to have to speak or I'm going to choose to speak through a colonial language that is a Western language, I want it to be as accessible to everybody as possible. I don't want to use words that people have to take the time to pause the podcast and go look up, mm-hmm. right? And so love is, is a particularly interesting word because it's probably the one word in the English language that most people would have a different definition of, right? So if like, you ask me to describe blue, we can both point at something that's blue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe there's, maybe we're, one of us will point to turquoise and the other one won't, but generally we can agree on a lot of things. You right. know, we can agree what hot is, we can agree what uh, color is, we can agree on all these things. But as soon as we start to talk about love, it becomes, a, uh, becomes controversial. Mm-hmm. And in the sense that, like, your definition and my definition, I'm sure, is extremely different, and that's with everybody. So, I don't know. I think uh, to answer your question, maybe I'm just going to pass. So, I mean, like, yeah, it's like, I don't know how important my answer is. I think it's just important that people think about what love means to them and actually like sit down and examine what that word means to them and then take the time to also acknowledge that their definition is different than somebody else's. Even if it's your partner and you say, I love you, like mm-hmm. maybe your de- definition is different than theirs. And so um, to me, an important aspect of love is just uh, acknowledging that I don't know what your definition is and trying to find understanding or see where we, we can meet in the middle on, on things. And it, it, it's a hard word to describe. That's, that's cool that you, that you phrase it that way, that really, like, ultimately, maybe knowing love the best is knowing that you don't know it at all, right? Absolutely. And, and understanding that it is the most variable thing. You and I were talking in the car a couple of days ago about um, Thai and, like, the language and how it's pretty much only present tense. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting conversation just to have a language that only exists in the present. Mm-hmm. And similarly, so words like love, right? In, Amer- in the English language, we really just have the word love and we apply so much to it. But there's so many other cultures that have hundreds of words for love and right. different types. Even Western languages, right? Like Spanish, there's a whole myriad of ways to describe love or mm-hmm. words to use, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. So I was going to ask, I mean, is there, is there any difference in regards to how Thai folk might um, express and, 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 and talk about love or engage? It's so different. Yeah. And I don't want to, I'm going to like, again, pass because I don't want to <laughs> speak on love for yeah. an entire uh, group of people. But uh, one thing that's really interesting is just the idea of, of what that word means to somebody, some like white person coming from the West who goes there and just as an example, um, meets a young Thai woman right. or a young uh, white woman who comes and meets a, a or an older white woman who comes and meets a younger um, Thai man. Like they're maybe both saying the same words and meaning two different things uh, more so than if it's two Westerners, generally speaking, just because their concept and their idea of what love is is so different, generally speaking, than, than it is in the West. You know, like they... The entire concept of of the word I is is different in the East and the West. Mm. I mean, it's the East has always been the ideology behind the East has always been about the people and about the we, and that's why communism can exist there, and that's why um, people think more in the sense that um, of detachment and the world around them rather than thinking about the self and. The Western ideology has always been about me, I, you know, everything starts with thinking about me. Like even as soon as we start to adopt and, and appropriate these Eastern philosophies, whether it's like meditation or whether it's yoga or whatever it may be, 
um, the teaching all of a sudden changes because it's seen through this this Western lens where it's mm. like you're thinking about yourself and being grounded and self-care and all of these things that then are always leading back to being about you mm. versus as soon as you look at it through an Eastern lens, like these, those, the, that, that concept is there, of course, but it's very new. Right. Like even the idea of uh, contemporary art is extremely new because contemporary art is always about me. Right. And when you look at uh, art in the East and you go back 200 years, it's for, the people. it's for the people, it's about the temple, it's about the people who built it, it's about the dynasty it's from, it's not about the individual who made it. And even the individual who made it, is, his, his or her name has been lost right. long ago. So um, it's just, it, it's a much different way of thinking. And then, you know, that obviously translates over to the way that we express our, our feelings. Like my... My feeling for how I love someone is obviously going to be different than yours, but it's going to be probably much different for somebody who's been um, culturally trained or taught to think about the people rather than themselves or think about everybody else before themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's complicated as soon as you start to cross the world and think about a word like love, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's part of the reason why I'm so intrigued by it, right? Because like this, this podcast is an investigation and a conversation starter around all those definitions and all of our interactions and, and starting to, I think it's been written off because it's so variable Mm -hmm. and also because it's so often been co-opted by branding, by Hallmark holidays, by, um, romance and interpersonal, um, sexuality, pornography, um, you know, the, the commercialization of sexuality, uh, so that love kind of loses maybe some of its um, opportunity as an active term and a verb that can be applied to community and can be applied back to the collective, um, perhaps as we're, you know, you speak on Eastern culture and Eastern artists, not necessarily being named, right? And, and that idea of yeah, maybe the most loving thing to do is to be the anonymous uh, person who, who gives without expectation of being you know, noticed or, or receiving anything back, right? Mm-hmm. The unconditional element of that. Has, have people given you wildly different answers to that question? Is that a question you ask all the time? Yeah, it's... I ask it on every, every episode. Okay, yeah. and, and is it wildly different, the responses? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, not wildly, but I mean, like, there's a lot of folks I ask who are very much informed by activism and come from the space of learning from people um, like me, uh, you know, Bell Hooks and Eric Fromm, who speak on love around um, kind of understanding what is and honoring and, and being to present to what is and truth in the moment, but also like believing in the potential for something greater and like the capacity for evolution. So it's kind of like um, a celebration of present and an optimistic view towards the future and the belief in that for others, for the world, and for oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of like being at peace with who you are and also like striving for greatness simultaneously and holding those two things in the balance. Um, that's one area. I think other people speak on it as kind of energy and um, a feeling, right? Associate it much more with that. A lot of people speak on it from the romantic side. Um, others talk about it from familial you know, value systems and connection to family being parents, there's, you know, that can often rejigger people's perspectives on love completely. Right. Uh, especially when they have kids. So there's a lot, g- different generations, right? D- different backgrounds. Um, but I do find that this conversation is one that's really interesting and um, has lacks uh, the teeth that I'd like it to have in the sense of being taken seriously, being taken out of the realm of romance and into the realm of activism, and also... Um, thinking about what it means to heal ourselves and the planet um, and and how inextricably, I believe, um, the concept of love plays into that. Mm-hmm. And so my personal experience is really integrated in healing my body and, and, and how loving myself allowed me to call love into my life in partnership and also in my community. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, that's been, that's been my experience. But, Phil, this is... There's so much to talk about, dude. Like your your experience and your story and, and perspective is so unique and powerful. Um, and I want to thank you for challenging yourself so much. It seems as though like you have this like unquenchable thirst for investigating the meat 
mm. right of what's of what's happening like and to me like there's like a lot of truth and love in that truth right of like truth seeking and exposing and and finding new truths and also like coming at things from a different angle and this conversation has been super illuminating for me in that way can i hold you to those words Please. can i can i ask you to give me a challenge for a week and i'll give you a challenge for a week i'd love that go ahead i'm ready but my, my challenge is going to be based on how difficult yours is. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, here Putting we go. me on the spot. Yeah. I don't have a minute to think. Well, okay, so a challenge for the week uh, for you. Um, I challenge you to come up with a definition of love that you are comfortable coming back to me with after a week and mm. sharing. Mm. Um, and also sharing it, whether it be actually speaking it to three other people or acting it to three other people. Mm, okay. You know what I'm Ooh. saying? So, okay. um, and, and I'll let you choose if you want to articulate it verbally or through action. Okay. Um, but I would say I'd love to hear your definition and then hear about how, how it played out with three people. Ooh. So I have a week to figure this out and act it out. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Only three people. Come on. That's easy. Okay. That's easy. Yeah. That, that's not that hard. <laughs> okay. So my challenge to you then, I don't know if this is going to be more or less difficult, but I would say, to not eat or wear any animal products for a week. Don't eat or wear any animal products for a week. Yeah. I love that. Nobody else's body in your body. Nobody else's body on your body. Okay. I'll challenge accepted? I'll take it. Okay. Challenge accepted. Like the Barney from uh, How I Met Your Mother. Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. Love it. Let's okay. go. Game on. Um, this has been amazing. How do people find you? What's the best way? <sighs> Google, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Phil America. Yeah. Phil America on Instagram. PhilAmerica.com. Yeah. You're all over. Yeah, you see that. Um, check out Phil's work. It's it's really powerful and, and incredible. Um, thank take you us for out. having me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And thank you, thank for, you. for taking the time. Yeah, and you've, you've encouraged me to interview an amazing group of friends that you're connected to, so I'm really looking forward to jamming deeper with a lot of them. Um, to take us out, I always ask my guests to share their favorite love song. My so, favorite love song? Or, or the one that might be, you know, maybe the first one that comes up. But what you well, got? the first one that comes up is I actually listened to today. Okay. Um, because it made me think of somebody very specific. And that song is Ain't No Mountain by uh, Marvin Gaye. Nice. So I don't know. Favorite's a hard word. And going back to like <laughs> the Eastern ideas that that word didn't exist in a lot of languages until uh, Western culture started to have influence in the East. And favorite is a word that, that's problematic, I would say. So it's I'm not going to say my to, favorite, but yeah, a great one. It's a good way to sell art, I've been told. What's that? You know, when someone comes into your gallery show and, you know, they checked out the work for a little while and then they're leaving, you just say, hey, what was your favorite one? <laughs> and then they're like, oh, I really like that one. Then you bring them over and you tell them the story and then they immediately have a personal connection. Right. That's a good, like, that's a good fucking tip. It's only, it's only $5,000. <laughs> it's a good tip. <laughs> Love it. Awesome. Well, this has been Love Extremist Radio with Phil America. Thank you for joining us. Please share this with your friends if it resonates. I know it will. And uh, please also leave a comment. Uh, iTunes is great. We're just trying to grow this, and comments really help. Comment See, is no comment. Comment. My is comment no is comment. no comment. Yeah, right. No, oh, no, no comment, comment is no a comment. comment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> leave the no comment comment. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Phil. Thank you all for listening. Have a beautiful week. Take care. Listen, baby. Ain't no mountain high. Valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you need me, call me no matter.